The Mahalis Gliding Club is northwest of central Johannesburg and southwest of central Pretoria. And it's probably about a 50 to 60 kilometer drive in either direction to get to the Orient Airfield, where the gliding club operates out of on weekends and in the holidays. Joining us today is Steve Mumson. He is the chairperson of the Mahalis Gliding Club, the owner, the chairman. He plays lots of different roles. The day that I was there, he was he was trying to solve a wind problem, which was really out of his hands, but that's the kind of guy Steve is. He tries to to find solutions to all kinds of things. Steve, it's such a pleasure to chat to you again. And I have fond memories of my visit to the gliding club. What is it like there today on the airfield? Uh, hello, Janet. Um, today is a uh, strong northerly wind, otherwise uh, reasonably pleasant for a winter's day on the reef. I've just come back from a flight, actually. Quite what? bumpy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, what was the quality of the flight like? It was uh, it was nice, interesting uh, uh, flying conditions, but uh, but safe, no problems. I spent an hour and a half in the air, so yeah, all in all, a good flight. Not my, not many birds up there. It's a bit strong for the birds at the moment, the vultures and whatever exactly. which we have around the airfield. So, Steve, I'm very I'm very interested to hear what gave birth to the Mkhali's Gliding Club. Share with us a little bit about this interesting spot and its history. Okay, so Mahali's Gliding Club uh, originated in 1972 with the amalgamation of two German gliding clubs. Uh, in fact, I joined the club in 1983 when it was uh, largely a German club, um, very meticulously managed and um, lots and lots of gliding and lots and lots of members. Uh, so over the period of years, uh, we've merged with other clubs and today we have a fairly representative profile of membership across quite a few different uh, nationalities, <coughs> uh, including South Africans, of course. And um, you have rangers. You have members who actually use club aircraft and those of us that own our own aircraft. Uh, all in all, we have 140-odd members. And we have on the airfield at the moment around about 60 aircraft not club aircraft. Of the club aircraft, we have at the moment eight. Uh, and these, of course, we would like to see operating full-time, if it was possible. So we're very keen to sure. um, invite people into our sport. Well, I was really, for me, it was a life-changing experience because I had never heard of something called a glider before, never experienced it. And I really was so impressed that Andreas had a glider in his garage, like he would park a car. And he just pulled it out and very, very soon we were up, up and away. But I'm sure that there's a lot more that is involved in getting a piece of a glider out and up in the air. And will you tell us what that process is, please, Steve? Well, I think uh, one should be aware that you have a glider. That is a aircraft that has no engine. So it needs a prime mover to get it into the air. And once it's in the air, you will then make use of nature to keep it up there as long as you can. That's rising air. You also have what we call a motor glider, which is the flight that was um, made available to you. Andreas uh, took out his uh, motor glider, a Demona, a fairly sophisticated aircraft uh, that can fly almost in any conditions at any time. So those are the two main types we have here. 
um, as to how, how what's involved in getting it up in the air before you can fly at any point. You have to inspect your aircraft. You have to satisfy yourself as a pilot that the aircraft is safe and serviceable. You then, of course, have to assess the weather conditions and make decisions accordingly. So safety is very, very much number one in, in any aviation sport. But now it's very much so because we are totally reliant um, to a large extent on the forces of nature. And that would be in this time of the year, you'll have strong winds, like what I flew in today. Uh, and other times, of course, you have rising air, which is the one we really want. We want to get into thermals. And then pretty much as what you are familiar with your um, birds of prey, how they circle in thermals, that's how we fly. We circle in thermals, mainly here in this part of the world, uh, and that takes us up as high as we can. Uh, sometimes we can get up to 17,000 feet, uh, just depending on the conditions of the day and the type of aircraft and your safety equipment. So you would say that the ideal conditions to fly would be thermal and um, that it is not as complicated as we might think it is because when I was there, I was just amazed. You know, here's a glider taking off and then it got a bit windy so we couldn't use the um, non-motorized one after a while. And when I looked at the aircraft, the motorized glider that we were we were using, I was just surprised at how compact it is. And I was even more surprised to hear that Andreas and Monica had gone as far as Namibia and Mozambique and that uh, they just pack a little bag and off they go. Now, I love that because it gives you so much power to just immediately plan and head out and it's just so liberating. And I'm sure that's something that for you who's always up in the air might sound like, well, what's so complicated about it? But I think that for travelers, to be able to have the freedom to do that is really quite empowering, to use an overused word. What is your opinion on that, Steve? Okay, so uh, what, you, what you're doing is you're taking it one step further. So when we train, we initially train around the airfield, get your aircraft up, stay up as long as you can, come down safely. And eventually you'll get to a point where you become uh, like a bird. You'll start wanting to move across the country, and that's called cross-country flying. Now, of course, with a motor glider, uh, it's actually called a touring motor glider. It's a matter of interest, TMG. Uh, mm -hmm. And as you've just said, touring is the operative word. So I, I would, for instance, um, decide on the day, okay, let's get up at, uh, what, 5 o'clock sunrise, we go, we fly over to ITBSport. We then go and look at the balloons taking off, fly around them, a bit of excitement for everybody. Then we fly to a club nearby or further away. It's got a its own um, little cafe, have breakfast. Yeah, uh, so it is far more and can be far more than just um, going up and staying up. You can plan and do things, obviously, within the framework of your own skills and the weather conditions. The the gliders uh, in competitions, the whole idea in a competition is to go, go a set course as quickly as possible. In other words, as fast as possible. So there it's a slightly different. Uh, in the morning, they will do a weather condition assessment. They'll set a task. And then every aircraft that is in the competition then sees if it can get around that 
task as quickly as possible. And of course, against a handicap. And that gives you an idea of your pilot skill and knowledge of conditions. So there's the so, two main uh, applications. So the question that I have now, Steve, is what kind of training goes into becoming a glider pilot? Is there a specific number of hours? Is there a specific skill set that's required? Yeah, so there is a set a syllabus, uh, just like a, a normal power pilot license. You have a gliding pilot license or glider pilot license. And you have to go through a series of theoretical uh, exams. You go through a series of practical skills training and assessment uh, until you get to a point where you are ready to go solo. Solo means you then take off and fly the aircraft yourself. So technically speaking, you can only do that once in your life because after that, any time after that would be a rating change, not a solo flight. So a very uh, powerful moment for any Abinitio student is the first time they go solo. Now, how long it would take depends entirely on the individual and, of course, weather conditions. Myself, I started flying in 84, mm -hmm. and um, I took 30 hours to go to actually be, uh, go solo and begin to fly cross-country. 30 hours of training, but how many hours of flying now in total, more or less, that you've done over the years? Because 84 to now is a long time. Now, I've got just under 900, uh, 900 hours of flying. And is it normal for you to just uh, plan a trip and to go? How, what's the furthest that you've flown? Uh, myself, the furthest I've actually flown on a scheduled flight is uh, Kuruman. And that's a very interesting flight, uh, flight because you fly through conditions where there's, there's no emergency landing area. So it's actually quite a challenging flight. That's four and a half hours one way, and I think the other way was just under three hours because the headwinds. So navigation, so, you know, all that jazz. Besides just the, the gliding, there's a, there's a wonderful social network that you've built through the gliding club. I saw it when I was there. I believe people come together on a Saturday and they bry and they, they love being there. They exchange stories. It's so, it's so welcoming, and it's a, it's a community that you've created. Do you find that this is something that people look forward to? It's part of their retirement planning. Do you have younger people who are coming in who are wanting to just find a way to de-stress? What is the profile of people who are learning to fly there? Well, over the years, you've had a very strong international profile. Germans particularly are crazy about stories. Uh, Poles, the Swedes, and the Brits. So you'll find a lot of the the members in the 60-plus range are falling into that category here at this airfield. And I, I get, that comes from the history of the of the airfield, which I gave you at the mm -hmm. beginning. And then over the years, obviously, more and more South Africans got involved, um, and now they form a, a central uh, part of the gliding fraternity, obviously, the biggest challenge with any sport that involves going out into the elements is there's a serious decline across the world, not in South Africa, across the world, in youngsters coming into the sport. Uh, it, it's very demanding, it's physical in that sense. You need to put time into things, uh, dedication to completing your task, and yeah, you just got to be prepared to go that extra mile to get something out of something which you're not going to get an immediate result because you have to train until you get to a point. So it's not like going into a 
it's a flight simulator. You switch it on, you can fly whatever you want, and then you switch it off. You have to progressively gain skills in a competency structure. So that's the challenge, is um, getting younger people in. So yes, we have an aging profile, uh, very similar to most uh, other clubs in the world. And at the moment, uh, we are actively pushing uh, training camps. So you came aboard uh, via the Mahalis Roxa Cadel initiative, uh, which is also attempting to attract people to come and fly with us. And should they enjoy it and they want to be learned to fly, then obviously they can they can then take the next step and join us. So we're very keen to get more and more youngsters involved. Yes. And we have so we're hoping that the demographic that. changes so that there's longevity in the sport. And uh, I find that surprising because I would have thought that younger people would just, you know, look for this as an activity because it's an adrenaline rush, etc. But obviously, you want to build longevity. So you want to build pilots who are in a different age category. But you also want to create an awareness of the sport and get people to just come and enjoy the experience. You know, it's one of those life-changing experiences. Oh, yes, indeed. So, yeah, that's the one of the core strategies I'm busy with at the moment. And then, as you mentioned, particularly at Mahalis, and by the way, in the Western Cape, um, we have an excellent club at Fusta. So if your local population there would like to get involved with gliding, you can look it up on the internet, Worcester Gliding Club, or Western Cape Gliding Club, or Worcester Gliding Club. And, yeah, they are very active, and they actually have ideal conditions for different types of gliding, which we don't do, like mountain flying, etc. But coming back to the social side, uh, our club particularly has, uh, we've got 230 hectares of land here, forests, um, uh, and what have you. So um, these are ideal for for families to um, uh, to actually to actually um, come in and actually enjoy the facility. So we're trying to create that situation for us. That um, you know you come and cycle here, you can come and run here, but most of all come and fly with us. And then in the afternoon we open the pub. Uh, we have a cash bar that's uh, paid for by members directly. And, yeah, people sit down and socialize, bry, and have fun. Yeah, that's what it's all about. It sounds wonderful, Steve. And I'm so excited for having had this experience. It's really changed my thinking, opened my horizons. And I think a lot of our listeners will experience the same. So for our local listeners, there's the Worcester Gliding Club. But those who want that crisp, fresh air that you get in the Mahalis, definitely the Mahalis Gliding Club. Um, Steve, it's been great chatting to you. I'm so excited by the experience and I'm hoping that younger people join because it's certainly the kind of thing that I believe young people will enjoy doing. Yes, a little bit of discipline with the training, etc. But what a fantastic sense of community and family I experienced when I was there. And special thanks to Andreas and his family for hosting us. I heard lots of stories. I got to know about their flights and, you know, traveling to Namibia, traveling to Mozambique, how many pairs of jeans they pack and how they really don't stress. You know, I'm somebody who carries a lot of luggage with me when I'm traveling. And it was inspirational for me that there's such a sense of adventure in people who are in their 60s and 70s. So 
just hats off to you for increasing the longevity of the demographic that you serve. I think it's great adventure and a wonderful way to unwind and experience uh, the the region from a different angle. So thank you for sharing the experience with me, Steve. It was really phenomenal. And all the best. We will certainly be telling our listeners about this great, it's a great shot left. So thank you. I think it was our pleasure to host you. And yeah, we look forward to hearing from you again. And then just a slight correction, the surname is Momin. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. We are chatting this afternoon with Bernard Werther. Bernard has been at the Black Horse Brewery and Distillery for many years. And he is one of the members of, of the ownership team, which comprises Marius Bezadenhout and himself, Bernard Werther. Marius is also the master distiller together with Shante Hilsa at Black Horse Distillery. Now, I made a very interesting shot left when I was in the Mahalis area a couple of weeks ago. And I chanced upon Black Horse Brewery and Distillery. And I must say to our listeners that it was like I had found myself on the set of The Hobbit or some fantasy movie because the decor and the buildings and just the atmosphere in this area of the Mahalis was exceptional. So I'm very pleased to have Bernard Guerta join us today to tell us more about this very interesting brewery and distillery. Bernard, it is such a pleasure to have you with us today. And I believe that uh, Black Horse actually started as a Frisian uh, stud farm, and that's where the name Black Horse comes from. What year was that? And tell us some of that history. Um, yeah, we, we bought a property in 1995 as a family. And um, it all came about because my, my daughters were very small at that stage, and uh, they tend to get sick in the city from all the pollution and so forth. And then we decided, well, let's move out of the city. And at the end of the day, we moved a little bit further out of the city, city than originally planned. But we found this beautiful piece of earth. It's still part of Gauteng, but also very much give you the feeling of Mapumalanga, of the water and the greenery and plants and the whole garden-like feeling of the valley. And, um, yeah, and then with the horses, it basically came around like I think any city person does. It looks so forward to moving out of the city and they're going to get horses and they're going to do all these things. Yes. And then we bought horses and the uh, fusions came about because I'm quite heavy, if you know me. And uh, I needed a, a horse that could carry some weight. And, yeah, and unfortunately, when, when that sickness bit, bit you, it's very difficult to let go. So at a stage we had 45 horses or Frisians, but luckily at some stage a friend of mine said you don't invest in things that eat while you sleep. So yes, uh, at the exactly. moment we've got five Frisians. I and see there's really a few to... now, but what magnificent horses, my goodness, they are really majestic animals. I would say probably the most beautiful breed there is of horses, although, uh, but if you look at it from a show point of view, they are really stunning animals. Yeah, and so then that's where the name Black Horse came from. That's when we actually registered in the Dutch Statbook as Black Horse Estate, which was our Statbook. I was still working in the city and uh, driving through every day. And yeah, in 2012, me and a couple of my friends had a couple of beers. And I said to them, I'm sure I can make better beer than some of the commercial brewers. Although I haven't had 
made one single draft in my life before then. So and, a brave uh, decision on your part, Bernard. <laughs> no, I think it was just more stupidity, actually, on one side. And maybe too much beer, but what a pleasure. What a fantastic <laughs> brewery you've set up. So you must have been well inspired. I was very inspired. I was telling you, but they also kept on inspiring me because they kept on saying, so when are you going to start this brewery now? So then I decided, yes, I better start building a building to build this bit of brewery in <laughs> that I don't even know what it's going to be. And I didn't know how it worked. I had absolutely no knowledge of brewing at all. So I managed to get my daughter, Nushka, interested in the concept. And uh, she was living in Cape Town at that stage. And I said to her, you better go visit a couple of brewers and find out how a brewery works. Because we're going to brew beer. And then my wife said to me, but if you brew this much beer, what are you going to do with it? So I said, no, I'll just um, do tastings. And she said, but you can't do tastings and give people beer and you make them drunk and they, if you don't give them some food. So then we decided to friends of ours to tackle this little, little kitchen that's supposed to feed these people when they come around and visit us for the ta beer tastings. Yeah, and from there, it just escalated. And in 2014, I think it was about 2013, when me and Marius and Tienzis had a chat, and they said, oh, they would love to. I said, get involved. And I said, oh, the next thing we need to do is make whiskey and distill products. And they were then, at that stage, on a world travel, and they decided, well, they're going to invest with us and uh, start this distillery. So uh, they got involved from the stilling side and also, of course, from our software and um, social media side. And yeah, and till today, most of the people working here and who's part of the whole uh, concept is all family. That's amazing, Bernard. You know, when I'm listening to you, you sound as chilled as Black Horse is uh, because what I got a real sense of, I thought, okay, I'm going to come in, I'm going to do some pictures, etc. Just chilled and took in the atmosphere. And uh, listening to you, you sound as chilled as your space is, and you make it sound you so humble about what a tremendous um, space this is. But it really is is very serene, and I think it is quite magical as well, because everybody there across cultures, across economic spheres, were very happy and very relaxed and enjoying themselves. So, you and the team are obviously doing something right if you attract people from all sectors of the community and uh, they all have the same level of comfort, which is wonderful. Yeah, I think it's, um, to be honest, it's very easy to be arrogant for people. But that's, that's definitely something that doesn't come through on, on the Blackboard side because I must say my whole team, you know, every person's time and his money and his, the effort he made to come to Blackboard, we appreciate and I think as long as we've got that philosophy, we'll keep on having um, a great crowd that comes to Black Horse. And, and on the other side, it's, it's really, I think, once people walk through the gates and they come into the gardens and they, they realize that all they have to do is relax. Now, we're not overlooking a car park. We're not in a tight, I'm going to put it, crowded, running environment the whole time. It's really coming out and sit back, drink a beer, eat some good food relax, chat with your friends, and um, just chill. 
that's the whole philosophy of Black Horse. And and I think the decor, which is my wife, Karen, she's she's the the hand in the decor. She's got that mm-hmm. nick to make every little nook and place special. And especially for garden. It also. is. You know, the decor is beautiful. And there's so many special corners that people can choose from. And it's like you're exploring. Now, you've told us a little bit about the horses. Please tell us what kind of menu you have and what can someone expect to experience when they come to Black Horse? We actually got two different menus because Black Horse is open seven days a week. And from Monday to Thursdays, we run the small restaurant site that we call the Stables Cafe. And um, it's a very nice cafe restaurant, but a cafe menu. But on the other side, we also do a little bit in the evenings and during the day, depending on where you want to sit, a little bit of elegant dining. So our food is beautifully prepared, beautifully um, uh, presented. And then we do anything from a pizza, which we do all our pizza ovens are wood fire pizza ovens. And we have well gelatinized dough that we use for our pizza bases. And most of the product comes off the farm somewhere. And um, to beautiful sirloins and fillets and rump steaks and pork bellies and mash and veg. And it's really, you know, as far as the Stables Cafe is concerned, if you do during the week, you really get that elegant dining uh, so experience. something for everything from Pardon? the sounds of it, Bernard. Something for the casual diner, somebody coming to look for a snack with a beer, and then, of course, the fine dining. And I saw a lot of young people, lots of kids there with activities for them. They seem to be having so much fun. I saw a trampoline, is that right, on the premises? Yes, yes, we've got a trampoline and we've got a little play park for younger kids. And then, of course, we've got the farm. Yes, I could hear the spills of delight when when I was there. There were some kids on the trampoline. and Every few seconds there was this excited scream, you know. So I knew there was some good stuff there for young people as well. Yeah, and the nice thing about them is, you know, they they only take a minute and then they're friends. And I think that's special. For me, the nicest sound sometimes, although I don't like kids screaming, is when they cry because they have to go home. I can believe that, that because I almost cried when I had to go home because it was getting dark and we didn't want to drive on that road in the dark and we had quite a way no. to go. Yeah, so you've but, uh, really got a nice, nice mixture of a service offering there. We do a bit of accommodation and then we got the wedding venue. And yeah, so we, we, we've got a fairly full package of, uh, of activities and the nice thing about our wedding venue is we only do one wedding a weekend. We don't, we're not a sausage machine are trying to pack as many as possible into the little time slot there is. The bride's got, she's got the support team that works with her the whole time. And I think that's what we, again, the essence of Black Horse is that nothing must be rushed. If it's your special day, make it a special day. Take your time. Do it properly. Don't come in overstressed and at the end of the day when you stand in front of the, where you exchange rings, then you're so stressed and you're so worked up that you actually don't even enjoy your special day. For sure. Now, Bernard, my only regret is that I didn't get to meet you when I was there last. But uh, I'm seriously thinking of taking some flying lessons at the gliding club. Mm-hmm. So you might see me soon coming to glide with those crazy people there at Mahali's gliding club because it was really a life 
changing experience to be in the glider. And then within a few minutes, the weather changed and we couldn't use the glider anymore. So we had to use the motorized glider. And I'm hoping to get to the point like some of the members there who just uh, pull out their two-seater glider and go to Namibia and go to Mozambique. So life sounds amazing there. So I'm looking forward to seeing you the next time I'm there. And thank you for joining us today, Bernard, on Jet Setting with Janet. I really would recommend this spot to anybody wanting to have some R&R in the beautiful Mahalis area. Bernard, before we say goodbye to you, are there any words of wisdom, any gems you'd like to share with our listeners about your beautiful spot, the Black Horse Manor House, the stables, the cafe, and all of the beautiful offerings that you have? I think I'm still too young to have words of wisdom. I'll, I'll I love the, the way old, you I'll think. I'll leave that to the older people. But <laughs> all I want to say is I, I just want to say thank you for, for visiting us and uh, and thank you for making this effort of um, actually bringing us onto your show and also living with my schedule that's not always as available as I want it to be. Absolute pleasure. But I tell you that uh, wisdom doesn't come with age. Eh? It comes with experience. Look at you and I. We're so incredibly young and beautiful. But we're we so are. wise at the same time. Hey, we definitely are lovely chatting to you bernard and wishing you and the team at black horse brewery and distillery all the very best over the next couple of weeks thank you so much for joining us on the show thank you janet appreciate it